This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, Jeremy here with Simple Little Life. Welcome to another episode of the Simple Little Life podcast. Today, I'm very fortunate enough to be joined by CJ Miller. CJ, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Jeremy. How about yourself? Doing good. So you are in Texas? Uh, yes, sir. Down here in El Paso, Texas. All oh, right on. What's the weather like right now? It's hot. And uh, actually, we've gotten some rain here lately, so it's very humid. So, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. Yeah. So what's hot for you guys? Like, uh, Generally, last week we had a high for the week of about 110. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That is hot. Um, yesterday, I was working... In, in jeans and then I had to switch the shorts and I think we were like 85 and I was just dying. <laughs> I'm like, this is hot for us, but it's right. nothing like what you guys have. Well, it's a, it's a different environment up there too. You're probably used to more cold weather. Yeah. Yeah. We so. get, we, we get the extremes. Uh, we, we will have some days where we'll get like over a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have quite a range and then we'll get to like minus 40 some years, but all what you're used to, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, very fascinated by what you do uh, for a living. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? You're a knife maker. I do some real cool knives. I want to get into those, but you're also a helicopter mechanic. Uh, yes. I've, uh, I work on CH-47 Chinook helicopters. Uh, I've been doing that for almost five years now, ever since I joined the Army. Okay. And that's with the Army branch? Yeah. Yeah, the United okay. States Army. They have me sent down here. So then did you did you enlist and then get the training for that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I enlisted and then, which without me, with me doing at, doing it after high school, it, uh, it really fast-tracked me to get through basic training and then to AIT, which is inv- advanced individual training. Okay. So um, from the moment I talked to a recruiter, about three weeks later I was gone. So oh wow! It was pretty quick. That is quick. Mm-hmm. And how? And so you've been doing that for five years. You said? Uh, just about. It'll be five years this August. Okay. Now, when I think about you know a helicopter, when I worked on a different places where we worked on equipment, nothing aircraft or anything like that, mm-hmm. but we all kind of had our own little specialties. Do you work on like potentially every aspect, every system within that, or do you kind of focus on hydraulics or the turbines or? Well, with my MOS, with my, my job in the Army, they have it. They have the, all the other specific areas, like you got your engine shops and you got your hydraulics and airframe and all that's broken down into the individual back shops. Whereas um, us, we're just maintainers, so we kind of touch a little bit of everything. So with the back shops portion, they know a lot about a little, whereas we know a little about a lot. Oh, okay. So it's the general maintenance of it all. Yeah. Now, I've heard facts or like statistics on how many hours of maintenance go into like maintaining a, an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think with the Canadians here, my boys did a little tour at uh, one of the Air Force bases, and they said it's like 60 hours of maintenance for every hour of flight time. Is it similar like that? I, I guess they're different birds, different creatures altogether. Yeah. But. Yeah, that, that really depends on the airframe itself. Uh, okay. Fortunately for us as Chinook mechanics, ours don't break near as often as, mm-hmm. say, a Black Hawk or especially an Apache. Okay. Um, 
those pretty well stay broken. We call them hanger queens because they just <laughs> they stay in the hanger all the time. But us, they they can get quite a bit of abuse before something generally breaks, and it could huh. be anything. It's you never know. Yeah, and for the listeners that may not know, uh, that's a CH forty seven, correct? Yes. And what? Just explain what that is. I mean, I know what that is. I've seen pictures that look so cool. Uh, well, it's um, it's a cargo helicopter, uh, used for transporting personnel or well, cargo. You can sling load, um, containers or other helicopters. Uh, not too long ago, we actually had a, a Blackhawk that was down on a training flight. Uh, nothing severe, just had an engine malfunction. So we actually had to. Um, get a team together called the down aircraft recovery team and we had to go sling load that helicopter and bring it back which is a really cool sight wow i bet and it's just a it really bumps the ego in the the chinook community over the blackhawks to see a (laughs) chinook carrying another helicopter (laughs) yeah kind of like a chevy towing a ford or something like that right (laughs) (laughs) that's funny that's cool and then what so the aircraft that you work on do they see duty or are they like for training I, I guess it kind of depends where you're stationed and stuff well no yeah they definitely they definitely see um duty so right now we're uh, back here in garrison and so it's just training flights and so on but last year uh we were actually in afghanistan so oh, wow. we had to tear down the helicopters to load them up onto a c-17 airplane to fly them to afghanistan and then take them off the plane and build them back up Wow, that's something else. And those are twin rotor, yes, uh, helicopters. And do those uh, just do they spin in opposite directions? No, they go the same direction. Yes, they they uh, spin in um, counter rotating directions. So yeah. one will go clockwise, the other will go counterclockwise. Okay, that's cool. What uh, what do you think is the most common thing you guys do? Is it just kind of everything, or is there something that you're constantly working on? The most common issue with them that we have right now, without going into too much detail, would probably be avionics related. Oh, um, really? Every now and then, something small will break, or we have an engine issue, and we either have to fix what's wrong, or we got to replace the engine. Um, but mostly, what we do is more of a scheduled maintenance. So every so often, every so many flight hours, it has to go into like a 25-hour certain things have to get done to it and then once it reaches like 200 hours it goes into what's called a phase where we break a bunch of stuff down and um, do a do a ton of inspections yeah and then it goes 400 hours there's a bunch of other inspections and 1200 hours and so on yeah so uh, probably a real heavy focus on maintenance yeah i mean ultimately that's the best thing i remember we did a big airport, well, Edmonton International Airport, and we got the contract to put in the conveyor system, but then also to the maintenance. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I ever saw like a really well implemented, very thorough maintenance program. It was incredible. Like we took temperatures of motors and gearboxes every week, uh, voltage readings, and then they had all this trackable data. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because you'll be able to see it's like, okay, this gearbox is continually getting a little warmer, a little warmer. So you kind of, you put the, the numbers together, you're like, okay, I think this one's going to fail. And um, I imagine, obviously, that's much more important with aircraft and you've got personnel involved. But it's, you know, like I always think when you get your owner's manual of your car, 
it has all that laid out for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but who, whoever does that? <laughs> oh yeah. So the, with owners' manuals, and we have for the manuals for our helicopters, it's it's all on a computer, and it's a ton of stuff. Oh, I bet uh, everything from telling you temperatures and stuff, and just basic things of that nature to actually tearing it down, taking things apart, step-by-step instructions to take it apart, what this replacement part is, and so on. It's very detailed. So in a sense, uh, the job we do is it's fairly simple. Uh, it's by far the easiest job I've ever had <laughs> just oh, really? because it, everything is just laid out so yeah. perfect. If you can read a manual, you can do the job pretty well. Yeah. And what made you want to get into that? <laughs> what led me to it was um, I was a welder before, and that wasn't going the way I needed. I needed more money to support a family and so on. So I got to toying around with the idea of maybe joining the National Guard and doing that on the side just to get the benefits and um, just get a little bit of extra money coming in. Not Not much, but a little. And what really drove it was I talked to my wife about it, and she said that she, she thinks I would look pretty good in a uniform. <laughs> so about three weeks later, there I was. I was off at basic training. Really? That's crazy. And you, you enjoying it? Like, do you plan on doing this for years and years, or do you have... Uh, no. No, uh, at one point in time, of course. But the more... The longer I've been in, there's just certain things about the military that just don't stick well with me. So I plan on, I got about a year left and then I'll be uh, getting out and moving back to Tennessee. Okay. And then what's your plan from there? I plan on getting my A&P license, which is a airframe and power plant. That way I can continue to do uh, aviation maintenance in the civilian world as well. Okay. And would that be still focusing on on helicopters uh that would all really depend on where exactly we end up and uh, the job job availability there so um with a and p license it kind of gives me it grants me the ability to work on helicopters or airplanes so with the six years of military aviation experience and my a and p license i could very well go to an airport and uh work on airplanes commercially hmm, that's cool now i don't know if i don't know if that's something we should get into or not but like when you said that there's things that don't stick well with you you feel like taught like, because just from an outsider i mean i have no clue what it's like to be in the military uh, if we don't want to talk about this we can just edit well, this no out. no we, we can conversate about it uh just certain things such as I don't like how some people that would have a higher rank than you think that they are more important of a human being than you. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't the case across the board. I know several higher-ranking people that I'm actually very close friends with. But there are others that kind of have more or less of a God complex. You know? Really? And, um, and then there's the other things of... Well, I don't really like being told to do PT. I'd rather do that on my own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't like working out on someone else's terms. You know. So is that part uh, of your regular, regular job there? Like you have to do physical training and, and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, it, it was up until uh, the COVID nineteen hit. 
then things kind of really shifted in a different direction with a lot of things that we do. Yeah. So do they still require you to do PT, but like not as a group or? Yes. And kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I went for a run today. Believe me. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's a big integrity thing. I suppose that, um, you know, like you said, the people that have that attitude that, oh, I'm more important, that exists any, everywhere, really. But right. I could see it definitely being, because it's so clearly laid out in the military, right? Like, even just w- with a rank. It's very clear, you know, where you are at the ladder. Uh, sometimes you go into a, a business setting, and, you know, my experience working with other people is always on, like, airport projects. And obviously, if some guy was a, a professional engineer, uh, they had the little ring on their fingers, and sometimes they had that, but a lot of times you're just, you don't really know what the experience is with other people, right? It's like there could be, worked with some, some guys that had construction companies that have been doing it for 40 years and they've seen everything and they do a fantastic job and you know, excellent to deal with. And then you have some other guys that come out of a school with some degree, but have never actually worked on a project before and, and they think their poop doesn't stink, you know, <laughs> it's just, they can do no wrong. It's, I think that's right. everywhere. Right. And speaking more into that aspect of it with um, the promotion ladder you would think that if you know more if you're better at your job than so and so well you'd probably get ahead in promotion well that's not the case at all Hmm. in the military it's you go to the promotion board you answer some jeopardy like questions basically (laughs) uh that's it. Nothing beyond that. So, yeah, I saw that when I like I worked for a company called the last employer I had was a company called Sangel, and they were Canada's largest privately owned oil company. It was actually offered a position in Texas with them. They said if you want to transfer, we're looking for guys. But it was funny because we had our shop was about two hundred guys between both sides, and I was on the fabrication side and the mechanical side. So we had the big welding shop, and then half the building was. You know, they'd weld everything up, fab up the frames, send it to paint, and then when it came back, it was on our side. And then we would put everything on. We'd, you know, assemble the motors, do the hydraulics and stuff. And I remember we were 200, and when I, I got through five rounds of layoffs, and there were 18 of us left, and then that last round was just three people, myself and two others. But I remember one of the guys that was behind was a good friend of mine, but literally he would spend about four hours a day laying on his creeper, underneath a rig somewhere watching television like watching shows on his phone and, and there's a certain time when we literally had no work and they told us they said if the bosses come by look busy I actually built one of my first belt grinders while I was working there <laughs> I, was, I was built with a treadmill and um, I need some machining done and I went to my boss I said there's nothing for us to do can I do this machining he goes oh you're you're not really supposed to work in the machine shop but those machinists are they've got nothing to do as well so I actually had parts machined on the company dime with the approval of my boss and that was different, but there's times when we'd be busy and they'd just be like, oh yeah, it's taking a little longer. We're just having troubles and stuff. And you walk by to, you know, to ask them if they have a schematic for something. And he's like, oh yeah, just a minute. And he's sitting on his phone watching TV. And it was funny because they stuck around longer than I did. You know, it's, right. it's like that. And like you say, it's just kind of, it's a, it's a whole game to play too. They're really good at talking to the bosses and the way they appeared and even though their work was always slower and not as good somehow they had that little shoe in so right i understand your frustrations there that's what made me not ever want to work for a company again i was right. like 
man, I'm doing the best that I can. And I, I was doing a good job and I knew it. And my boss knew it, but things don't work out that way sometimes. So, oh, well, what do you do with your knife making? Uh, what, what made you want to get into making knives? Well, uh, it started about towards the end of 2017 and carried on through 2018. Um, what it was is I've, I've really always had this infatuation with knives uh, ever since I was a kid. I just had a, a slew of pocket knives. Mm-hmm. Um, and come to find out that my granddad... He made knives as well. Oh, really? For quite a while, yeah. And then so come the end of 2017 sometime, I really needed a hobby. Uh, I was getting so bored on the weekends. I need something to do. Uh, I was just watching YouTube videos, and I believe I ran across your channel, and I ran across a couple others as well, uh, one of which being um, Steve Miller Knives. Uh, he he had a YouTube channel at the time, and when I when I saw him make a knife, I was just like, "That's cool." Yeah. Just, so I was like, "I really want to give that a try." So the first thing I tried to make, for some reason, was just a war hammer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a random thing, and it started out. I just I wanted to make something cool. Yeah. Had no idea how to go about it. Knew nothing about the science behind anything of it. I just want to make something cool. And yeah. I think that's how a lot of people actually start out. They want to make something cool. Yeah. And did you forge that or did you like make it out of a little hammer? <laughs> no, I made it out of uh, some black iron pipe, a lot of welding, and just some uh, like three-quarter inch round stock. Just welded it together. It was, it was a turd. Yeah. You still have it? No, I think I ended up scrapping it. Yeah. You know, with with the YouTube channel, I get tons of comments, people saying, oh, I'd love to learn how to do that. But it's kind of like you did. And what I, I did, we just, there comes a point where you just have to do it. Right. And right. I always, one term I always like to use, ignorance is bliss. You know, because if, if you wait till you have everything figured out before you start, you know, it's like taking a road trip and waiting till every single light's green before you move. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes you just right. got to go and, and deal with things as they come up. But that's right. really cool. And so, you still is it still like a hobby, just like a weekend thing, or? Yeah, it's a it's a hobby slash side hustle. So okay. I, I, I've I've been taking a lot of orders, um, and it's gotten to the point to where I feel like it, I can. So, um, which that comes with time and a lot of practice, mm-hmm. uh, just and a lot of failures as well. Yeah. So tell me about the, your your shop, your equipment. What uh, do you have a belt grinder and? Yeah, uh, I started out with a, a homemade belt grinder um, that I had made out of just some scrap square tubing, a little worn horse motor, and some skateboard wheels, and so on. And then it got to the point to where I actually sold a couple knives to where I could build another belt grinder. So it's still a, a home built belt grinder, but it's. Um, it's laser cut out. It's a Saber OSG. Uh, you can find the plans for it online. Have someone cut it out. Okay. I've got that. Um, the biggest game changer was a VFD. Yeah. Didn't realize how how big of a difference that would be, especially in the finishing work to really slow yes. it down, dial it in. That's uh that was the biggest blessing. 
Uh, I just recently purchased my first heat treat oven. Okay. Uh, that was a big deal. Um, still trying to learn the metallurgy behind a bunch of steels. Yep. So, and you got a Paragon? Yeah, a Paragon KM18T with the touch screen. It's, it's nice. Yeah. Are they in Texas? Paragon? Uh, yeah, Mesquite, Texas, I believe. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I thought I saw when, when Alex Steele got his, I thought he flew... I was thinking it was Texas, but... You know, I find one of the best places... Have you ever checked, like, where you buy your steels from? A lot of times they will give the manufacturer's recommended heat treat schedules. Yeah, that's uh, that's where I learn. I get all my heat treating recipes from is from my steel supplier. Yeah. And what kind of steel do you like using the most? Uh, right now, I'm really venturing into the world of 52100. I've, like, uh, and then I really like um, ADCR V2 for some of my more heavy use knives, my ADCs. And then for my finer knives, like uh, the ones that I make for hunting and skinning, I use 52100 for that. And uh, I'm also really dabbling into the world of kitchen knives and straight razors as well. That's cool. Um, yeah, I saw you You got some templates on your Instagram of some straight razors. Have you made one yet? Uh, I'm in the process of making one, and it's it's tricky uh, to yeah. really get a deep hollow grind to about one thousandth of an inch at the edge. That that yeah. takes some burnt fingers. Yeah. You ever shaved with a straight razor? Uh, I have before. Um, not as much. I find it's... Uh, it, it's kind of annoying shaving with a straight yeah. razor every single day. Yeah. Uh, but if it's a once a week thing, I think they're great to really get yeah. the beard off. Yeah. Um, well, I used to always shave with a straight razor. And uh, one thing I found is it seemed to be almost like a deeper shave. Like if I just use a disposable, I mean, every day I had to. But I noticed the the, the five o'clock shadow, it would, it would take an extra day to come in if I did a straight razor shave. And I always thought that was really weird. But then um, as soon as I start shaving my head, I was like, I'm not taking a straight razor to my <laughs> noggin, man. It's scary enough on your face. And once you get used to it, um, I mean, you cut yourself a little bit. But uh, yeah, I wasn't about to do that on my head. So I haven't, I haven't shaved with a straight razor for a long time. But I would like to, like to build them. Have you ever seen that? There's a YouTube channel. I think it's Bob's Razors. Uh, I've, I've seen quite a few here lately. Um, I ran across, uh, I think Lewis Razors was Yes, that's one. what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. really, I, I like how much he explains everything behind what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't done a video in a couple of years, but just some really nice work. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a, a really nice mellow voice. They're kind of a slower pace. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found that on the, I've been thinking about making straight razors. Um what steel are you using for yours? Uh, fifty-two one hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's cool. And then you're gonna do like the the handle, basically make it like a friction. Uh, thing, at or? some point, yeah. Right now, I'm, I'm trying to focus on more of the the actual usability of it, getting the edge just right, and getting the grind and everything right, and then I'll dabble into the the folding aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And what size uh, contact, what size of hollow grind are you putting in there? Uh, I've got a 10-inch contact wheel right now that I'm using. Um, I've noticed that for people that make them out of like a quarter-inch stock, they'll use a smaller contact wheel to get get the hollow even deeper. But I'm yep. using a 5-30-second stick stock okay. right now. So a 10-inch can really do pretty well from what I've found. Yeah. And then when you're grinding that, do you use a jig to grind that? 
No. Uh, I, I've only ever used a jig to grind any bevel once, and I didn't like it. Huh. So uh, I forget who I was talking to a long time ago, and they said they do everything freehand. I'm like, well, I'm going to try that. And so many skint knuckles later, yeah. I finally got really <laughs> comfortable at just freehanding everything. Yeah. It is something I noticed that once I finally learned how to freehand, it is hard to go to a jig. Mm-hmm. Um, but I even have in my mind, like, like I do have, I've, I've thought about making a razor and, you know, kind of go through the process, but I'm still convinced that I'm going to go to a jig. The one nice thing, I guess, with a straight razor is that there's, there's no curves, right? So it's just mm-hmm. a perfectly flat grind line up top. And that lends itself really well to a jig. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on a contact wheel. I find with a contact wheel, when you, when you've got a belly on the blade and you kind of curve, you can tell when you look at a grind, if it was on a hollow grind, if it was done with a, um, you can tell if it was done with a jig or not because that grind line kind of changes. You know, if you've got a belly and you leave it fixed right. in the jig, it's, it's well, a little different than a flat grind. For the longest time, I was really intimidated by hollow grinds because all, all I had done was flat grinds. And I even think, I think I talked to you about it of uh, some pointers on doing a hollow grind. And you had said that well, you actually find that a hollow grind is easier than a flat grind. And after doing a lot of hollow grinds, I find the same thing. I don't mm-hmm. like doing flat grinds anymore. Yeah. But yeah. so I think a lot of what it is, uh, especially hollow grinding a blade with a belly in it, is getting the good, the right technique to kind of tilt the blade a certain way so that it follow the, the grind lines follow all the same way mm-hmm. and you still get a good hollow in there up the curve of the belly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for that, you, I think when you're in a jig, you you can't make that adjustment because you actually have to right. move the knife. Like when, you know, say if you're holding the handle and you're grinding a part, like the flatter part, and you get towards the belly and the tip, I find I actually drop my handle a little bit mm-hmm. uh, to keep that line matched up. And you just can't do that when you're when you're grinding with a jig on a hollow grind. But. Right. And like, say if you're freehanding a flat grind, it's to get it to go up the belly and to form the tip, you just kick the tail of the knife out a little mm-hmm. uh, and i found a technique for uh, from a hollow grind is i'll kick the tail out just slightly but i'll also tilt the edge of the blade towards me just a little okay. bit to kind of follow the the belly up yeah and it, it took some practice and it's still kind of tricky but it's getting better and better with each bevel i do yeah yeah and uh, especially like you had mentioned with the vfd um I think I talked about in the last podcast, but especially when you're getting to like, you know, you've got 90% of the grinding done and you're just kind of like trying to tune up the edge and then really fine tune your grind line. It is so nice when you can go slow. Right. You know, sometimes I'll have my VFD set at like 10, which is, you know, it's not really taking much material off, but I can really focus on moving those lines and then everything happens so much slower that you have a little forgiveness in there, a little time, you know? Right. And um, yeah, the VFD is a real real big difference and it's one of those things that you don't really notice you don't really think about how much of a difference it'll make until you actually use a grinder with a vfd on it because like you said being able to slow it down and dial in and really pay attention to what you want to instead of a single speed grinder where you got to zoom through it so you can't take your time as much or else you burn up your steel or what have you yeah and then on, on handle materials it's really nice to go slow too Right. Especially if you're dealing with woods and stuff. I always I always used to have to be really careful with my grinder when it was a single speed because I would, uh, you know, end up burning the wood really quickly. 
Mm-hmm. That's cool. So uh, you said you're getting into kitchen knives. You Have you done many of those? I've made three. Yeah, I've made three. And, uh, well, I've made more than that, but I've successfully made three. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I really, it's interesting cause it's a, it's a completely different aspect of, um, grinding on the knife itself. Uh, when you're grinding the bevel of a kitchen knife versus a hunting knife, it's, it's very different. Mm-hmm getting the the taper to go all the way up the spine and so on so it's very interesting and i I really i'm really trying to gear towards the finer end of cutlery the more precision knives and so on Mm -hmm. Um, i've actually uh, i've actually got an order from an old buddy of mine who just he placed an order for five a set of five kitchen knives so that's that's going to be interesting to try and get out that's cool well, I see you have uh, Mareko's hat on. Uh, the yeah. listeners can't see us, but you've got that. What, what do they call that? Though you got the blue above, and it's the knife going through it, and then I the red on the it's, bottom. It's the it's the same as uh, the MLB, but I don't know the actual name of it. But yeah. I know the Major League Baseball uses the same thing, but instead of a, a guy pitching a baseball, it's just got a big old chef knife through. Yeah, it. yeah, those are cool. That was a really brilliant idea he had doing mm-hmm. that. That one's cool. I've seen that for all kinds, like skateboarders use it. Um, I've seen a lot of guns, like with guys in shooting shooting clubs. They'll have like a, right. an AR-15 or something like that. Um, actually, that, that's kind of. Do you do any firearms training with your work in the military? Funny enough, I actually uh, messed around with firearms and whatnot more before the military, hmm. as opposed to now. the The military kind of burned me out on shooting. <laughs> Yeah, because going to the range and shooting is just annoying and stressful. You drive in the back of a big old truck, getting dusty for about two hours. You get there, you got people yelling at you to hurry up and shoot. <laughs> and then you get back in the truck and you drive another two hours. But I, I, I did a lot more shooting and such before the military than I do now. Huh, that's interesting. You know, I remember I had to, did some work in San Antonio. This was probably around I don't know ninety nine two thousand. I don't know how I haven't been to Texas for quite a while, but uh, and it was really common. You see guys with the you know hunting rifles in the back window of their pickup truck. Is that uh, and I always think of Texas. See, like I'm from Alberta, and you know to Americans like, well, what's the province of Alberta like? Like every state has its own flavor, different people, mm-hmm. and I always say that Alberta is like the Texas of Canada. I mean, we've got a lot of beef, you know, a lot of ranchers, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of oil and gas. And there are way more pickup trucks than cars. But I guess the one advantage is in, in Texas, you guys are a lot more free with your firearms than, than Canadians are in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of freedom with firearms here in Texas. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty well the same as Tennessee. So whenever I go back to Tennessee, that's kind of a upsell also. It's, Tennessee and Texas are very similar. <clears throat> but you, could, you can own pretty, much, pretty well whatever you want here in Texas. Hmm. Did you hear about uh, the big gun ban they pushed in Canada? Justin? No, I haven't heard about that. So anyways, we had uh, a tragic incident. Like this was, I don't know, a few weeks, maybe a month or two into the pandemic. And uh, there was a shooting in eastern Canada and five people were shot. And then a few days later, Prime Minister issued this massive 2,500 gun ban. And 
absolutely crazy. Like, you know, really, I guess, an attack on assault rifles, you know, like Mm -hmm. air quotes, assault weapons. Um, But it's so funny. They did it so quickly. And I I don't like to get overly political in this podcast, but, um, you know, the Black Rifle Coffee Company, Mm-hmm. <laughs> they listed one of their coffees as a banned rifle in Canada. <laughs> I, I did. I did see that. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think twenty of the the guns on there are uh, airsoft rifles. Mm-hmm. Uh, over two hundred and fifty of them are land to, to their anti aircraft missile, like handheld missile launchers, because like that's the problem. Most Canadians are right. out of control with their missile launchers. It's just. Right. And so, I mean, they're fighting it. You know, it's kind of funny because I think a lot of times these politicians aren't that smart. Um, if you were trying to take guns away from people, I would think it'd be a little bit more systematic to do it a little by little, right? Instead right. of just coming on broadcasting 2,500 guns and uh, they're even going after, I think, I, I haven't spent too much. I don't get too worked up about it, but I think like 10-gauge shotguns are, are being made illegal. Um, interesting enough is that I've got a IWA Tavor, and so basically, it's the same thing as an AR-15, right? It's a, a semi-automatic um, uh, 223, and for the legal, but it's a bullpup design. So the action is actually in the, the buttstock of the rifle. Mm-hmm. And that one is always listed as a non-restricted weapon. So you just have the most basic of firearms license, and you can get that. And that also means that I could I can take it out, you know, varmiting if I want to. Where I live, you have to have a bigger caliber to do any big game hunting. But... um the AR-15 is a restricted weapon. So I have to go for special licensing, but I can only shoot that in a uh, registered gun range. But it's so crazy because they're essentially the same gun, except the Tavor is a few inches shorter, <laughs> right? right? In theory, making it more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so funny because even that one didn't make the list of the 2,500 guns they banned, <laughs> but you know, I'll have to have the Black Rifle Coffee, but <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's uh, I don't know. It's... All those, all those things are. There's so much to them that I don't even really know what's going on. Cause I'm just like, I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, whatever. Just it's something. I think if you get into it, you just spend so much of your time worrying and fretting about it. Um, but I, we're lucky in Alberta because w- the way it works here is we got the federal government and they appoint a firearms minister to each province. Mm-hmm. And with the new government that we have in Alberta, they just kicked the old firearms minister out and appointed their own, which they're allowed to do. And this new one says, that's fine. The federal government can issue whatever ban they want. The province of, of Alberta will not enforce it. So it's it's kind of weird now. Like, uh, I'm not sure what the other provinces around us are going to do. You know, it might be illegal in, in British Columbia to have these guns. But as soon as you're in Alberta, technically it's a federal law. But our ministry here, we, they will not enforce. So that's kind of a good thing. I, I know a lot of gun owners around here kind of breathe the sigh of relief when that happened. But Right. Uh, I think um, Texas issued... Basically the same statement saying how um, if the federal government tried to issue some sort of ban that was just outrageous, the state of Texas would not enforce that law and so on. Yeah. Which is which is a good thing because um, without getting too political, um, when the government tries to come after your firearms, it's never really a good sign. No. Uh, luckily, uh, here in the U.S., we have the Second Amendment, which is a—it's the Second Amendment for a reason. You got the First Amendment, and you got the Second Amendment, and those two are the most important by far. Because mm-hmm. uh, without those, your uh, your government can really kind of take over you, and it's all a form of control. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I did a little research into it, and in Canada, 
we got like the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. And in that charter, it, it is every Canadian's right to carry a firearm on their person for self-defense. Obviously, like like I can I can drive around with a rifle in my truck or whatever. Technically, I don't even have to have it locked or in a, in a gun, you know, within the classification of an unrestricted. But in our in our Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, I'm allowed to carry a handgun, but the RCMP won't issue the permit. And so it's really kind of weird. Like you know, the Americans have you guys have the Second Amendment. Well, we have almost the exact same thing written into our charter, mm-hmm. but the RCMP. I don't, I don't know what, why, but they will not issue that to anybody. You can, you can apply for it. Certain, uh, if you're like a trapper, you're on a trap line up north, um, you can actually be allowed to carry a, a sidearm on you. Um, there's been a few judges and some really high profile. I think it was a, the very first abortion case in Canada. That judge was given a carry permit and he used it, <laughs> you know, and, and it was nothing special. It's just the RCMP said, okay, yeah, he gets it. And it was already in. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Just kind of interesting. It's kind of mm. kind of weird, but um, yeah, no, it's uh, crazy. It's gonna be crazy to see what happens with all this stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's you have your opinions on it, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, let's, <laughs> man, enough. You know, let's let's yeah. just everybody just worry about yourself, be good to each other, mind your own right. business. You know, that, that's the way I look at things. And that's what uh, a lot of people just want. Just leave us alone. <laughs> just yeah. live our lives. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh well. So, uh, what, what knife are you working on right now? You got anything? Couple knives going other than that straight razor? I, I got a handful. Uh, like I said, I got that order of kitchen knives. Um, a little EDC I'm working on as well. Uh, I'm working on a new design for a skinning knife. If I could ever find the time to finish that. Yeah. Um, and I noticed too you're you're putting some nice fullers in some of your blades. Yes. Do you do the, do you do those with a jig or those freehand? Uh, no, those are definitely with a jig, and that's yeah. actually a a technique that I jumped from you and your channel. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. uh, clamping it to a one two three block and running along the work rest on my belt grinder small wheel attachment. Yeah, yeah, and even then they're tricky to get really nice, especially where they start. Um. You know, I, I'll use like the layout die and I'll kind of mark out where I want the fuller to start on each side. And man, you just kind of get that, you know, you can either have it really hard and kind of almost like a, a square start to it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you want to really finesse it, you actually get it to look like it's round. Like I was almost like a, a ball nose milling machine. And I find once I start doing that, man, I'll get one side and it's like, oh, this is a little bit past the line. So I got to <laughs> flip it over and like this, man, sometimes you chase those suckers. Yeah, you definitely got to. Uh, so what I do is I actually have a Bill Benke file guide, oh. and I'll I'll clamp it on there backwards with uh, not the carbide side facing oh, really? it, and, and uh, I try to line it up exactly where I um, I line it up right where I want my plunge lines to be, also so that they're even. And I only use it just to scribe a line on each side, so it's the same on both sides. Then I'll remove the file guide. Uh, clamp it up in the one two three block and scribe it out with the belt itself to see if I got it lined up right and then I'll just I'll start with the 80 grit and I'll get close to the line then 120 I'm kind of finessing it then by 220 I'll hang the belt off the wheel just a little bit and mm-hmm. kind of finesse it up to that line so that it does have a nice little crescent to it yeah on the edges 
That's a good one. I've never thought about doing that with, with a fuller. Mm-hmm. But I always use that trick when I want to get a really nice gentle plunge line. Mm-hmm. You know, you hang this the belt over. And you know, one thing I don't see a lot of people talk about, which you just mentioned, is using the abrasives to kind of mark out things. Mm-hmm. And, like, I do that all the time. If I, especially when I'm coming from, you know, if I rough in a bevel and then I heat treat and I'm going to do my finish grinding, um, just to make sure sometimes things change, right? If you've worked on a few different things since then, you've taken your work rest on and off, what I'll do is I'll set it up and if I'm using a jig, I'll just kind of come over that and just scratch it without the belt running and you can see if your angle is still the same. Right. I think that's a, it's a strong tip. I don't see a lot of people doing that and like you said, to line up your fullers, you can scratch it and then you know wherever the, the heaviest part of the scratches are, that's where the center of that fuller is going to be. Right. Yeah. And then it's... It, you're just going to grind that those scratches out anyways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. That's cool. What uh, what are you working in? You in a garage or a shed? Yeah, I'm working in my uh, garage. That's attached to our house. Okay. My my military housing, military oh, okay. housing garage. Yeah. There's no issues. Like you don't have to worry about people finding out about that, or you do whatever you want. You're. They don't know. They yeah. <laughs> I guess it's not like you've got big propane forges <laughs> like a not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Did you do for did you ever do any forge knives? Uh I did a few, but I just found that it, it was very time consuming and wasn't necessarily my thing. Yeah. So I mainly just stuck to stock removal. Yeah. If I was going to really focus on doing more forge knives, I think I would I would like to take it to a point where you can actually get eliminate a lot of the grinding. Right, right. Because that'd be one benefit is like save time on the grinder. Let's let's forge these bevels in. Let's put in a distal taper if it's a larger knife and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And which kudos to the people that have that ability that can do that. That's that's an incredible art form. Um, see, Jason Knight, his uh, brute to forge knives that he does are pretty much two finished knives all by forging. That's that's an incredible thing. Yeah, that is cool. That's a different level right there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Um, have you ever worked with any Damascus steels? Not yet. I'm actually on a waiting list from a buddy who makes Damascus. Oh, okay. And uh, whenever he gets to that point, I'm going to have him send me some. Yeah. No idea what I'll make out of it. It'll probably sit on my shelf for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, yeah. Uh, I'm at the same spot. I've got three pieces of Damascus that <laughs> I'm waiting. They're, they're waiting to be turned into knives. Um do you know like what the, is he do particular patterns or is there a particular pattern you want? Uh, he mostly does um, three and five layer uh, Damascus like sand my billets. And, okay, which that's very appealing to me. I really like the sand my. Yeah, style. yeah, I love that. And to me, that seems so practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I really started appreciating sand my when I actually bought some like Japanese hand forged knives, and you know, talking with a, a gentleman. He owns a company here in Canada called Knifeware, and he actually, he always goes down to like the Takafu factory in Japan and stuff, and you know they do it for practical purposes. You get a really really high hardenable steel, but to maintain a really high hardness, it's brittle, and so then they'll just clad it with a, a stainless. I don't even know what stainless they clad it with, but they do it not for looks or anything, but just so that they can have some protection. And it gives them more resilience, but they can still maintain a super high. Like a lot of these knives they have are like Rockwell, like 62, 65, like dangerously high if it was a mono steel. 
right? You, you right. drop that thing on the kitchen floor. And these knives, if you drop them on the tip on the kitchen floor, the chances are the tip's going to break off. And he tells you that when he buys them, he's like, well, I'll just grind it again. I don't care. But um, that's that's a part of the Sanma I really like because I don't think you sacrifice any of the performance. You, you still essentially have a monosteel cutting edge, but you get that, that extra more ductile protection on the outside of it. Right. But, yeah, we actually saw, I think it was two years ago, they brought some of the bladesmiths from Japan and they did a live demo. And it was pretty cool. I, I got to see them forge out. They had the... The Sanmai built already made. They brought them with them, and then they forged out a knife. But they forged out a kitchen knife. I don't know. It probably took them 15 minutes, maybe. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny because I, I have some of these knives, and you can buy, like, a really nice, like, an 8-inch chef's knife for, like, 190 bucks Canadian, which is about 150 American. And these are, I mean, the handles are a little different. Like, they're more utilitarian. A lot of the traditional knives are, you know, they just kind of stick them together and they look nice but they're like i spend when i'm doing like a wall style handle i spend a lot of time on the handle right it's mm-hmm. a lot of hours and and i think their approach traditionally is like no just swap that out and a lot of people just change out handles in fact uh when this when this gentleman was first importing these knives from japan um none of the handles were glued on they're all just friction fit and he says you know they bring them here to his north american customers and then people are using them and after a year that loosens up and they're all frustrated so he actually had to ask them uh, to, to put epoxy in them. And they're like, why would you even do that? And he said, because people don't understand here, right? People right. use them differently. It's just like a, a cultural thing. That's how it is there. It's like, okay, after a few years, you're going to need to put a new handle on your knife. And uh, it's kind of crazy. But I also like the fact that I've seen, if you ever go look on YouTube videos for like making a traditional wall handle, mm-hmm. I had to dig down a little bit, but the, there's these guys that have these machines and they just stick a block of wood in there and I don't know how it cuts it to to be an oval, but he basically just kind of runs this machine and does a few passes and pulls out. He's got like a nice oval shaped wall handle with a hole in the middle of it. And this guy's sitting there. He probably makes he can probably make a thousand handles in one day. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I really wish that I really wish you know I could take that approach sort and say you know this is purely utilitarian handle. Um, <laughs> but it's it's pretty cool because I I spend an awful long time on my wall handles, but. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried uh, hidden tang knives or stick tangs? I, I haven't yet. At some point, I'll find the gumption to give it a shot, but not at the moment. <laughs> yeah, there, there. I, I find there's not nearly as much information out there as far as you like videos and and mm. like uh, how to do it. There, there, I think there's starting to be more. But I remember when I first went to to do it. I mean, I had a few people like on Instagram that I'd seen done it. And gave me some tips, but I don't know. It's a lot less out there um, as somebody just getting into knife making. And obviously, I think it's easier to make a full tank knife. Yeah, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But I found when I was trying to get to a good way to do those wall handles, man, I, I couldn't find much out there. I was lucky enough to have some really great tips from some people, but then a lot of it was just trial and error. And I'm still trying to improve my process. But Right. And the way you uh, do it with the, the dowel pen is, is a really genius idea. It's, it's as simple as drilling a hole the size of the dowel, yeah. fitting it in there. That way you're not just going forever trying to get the perfect fit up. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where I saw that for sure. I think Noel Valshon was doing that, of Valshon Knives. Mm-hmm. I think I probably saw him doing that first. And then there's a few other guys. So it's, um, but yeah, like I, I don't, I never saw that on YouTube. It was like mm-hmm. on Instagram through some people I knew. So even when I was trying to look for that stuff, it, you know, when you're on Instagram, 
sometimes it's hard to find information to learn how to do something, right? right. Uh, sometimes if you, you follow really talented makers or something like that, that they share their stuff, but... Yeah, I found when I was trying to figure out that, and even once I realized the dowel, I was like, okay, how are people cutting their dowels? <laughs> There's yeah. not a lot of information on that, you know? But. Which, uh, a, a neat thing about it, if you ever get into a situation where you can't find a lot of information on a certain subject or how to do something, it kind of gets your get your brain going to where you got to think about how to do it, which is something that I feel like society lacks a lot of today. They They don't have as much creativity as... We used to because everything's so readily available nowadays. Yeah, you don't have to think about it. You just gotta see somebody do it. Okay, I'm gonna do it that way instead of figuring out your own way to do it and whatever. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I, I think we all talk about how great this is a social media, and and really, I think most of people that have gotten into knife making the last five or ten years, it's probably because they saw how accessible it was via something on the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, like, I think that's just one of the amazing things about being alive at this time. But then it's also a detriment because, like you say, people really have lost the ability to problem solve, you know. And myself, too, when I didn't know how to do a wall handle, man, I was like, <laughs> I can't find a video. What am I going to do? <laughs> I guess I can't do it, you know. And it's, man, you just, it's crazy how reliant we've become on other people's experience and them just sharing it for us to just mm-hmm. type a few words and hit search and have our answer. Right, and it's something that I got into was I kind of got myself in that stink of, well, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to look up how to do it. And it, when it came come back to uh, doing a good hollow grind, I uh, asked a, another buddy of mine how he done his, if he had any tips, and he says, get a pile of steel yeah, and practice. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's true, and that's that's how I ended up getting to the point of where I am now in that aspect, just, just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. I get asked that all the time. Like mm-hmm. people say, uh, any tips for grinding better bevels? I'm like, you're not going <laughs> to want, you don't like this, but just grind more bevels. Right. That's, that's kind of universal law of doing anything, you know, you, you got to ruin some steel and eat up some belts. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you're mentioning asking a buddy, do you know quite a few knife makers that you hang out with regularly? Not around here, no. The only ones I know of, and to be quite frank, I only actually have conversations with uh, two or three actual knife makers. Huh. Uh, but as far as around here, I've I've never actually met another one. That's crazy, hey? That sure I, is. That's one thing I, like, I'm in the same boat. I've never, I've never actually, like, been in, like, made a knife with another person that knows how to make a knife. Or right. even hung out with somebody who's, I mean, I met a few, but you're not talking shop, right? It's like, oh, yeah, cool, this and this. But you, I think, like, I've never been to a hammer in, but you mm-hmm. see a lot of these guys talking about, or some of these guys get together and, and they'll share it on Instagram. They're like three or four guys that are amazing knife makers and they'll just, let's, let's make some knives, you know? And I think that would be mm-hmm. such a cool experience. And I, I think the level of learning from seeing somebody else who, who's good at making knives in person. I just, I, I'm looking forward to that. I, I'd love to find somebody locally that knows how to make knives and mm-hmm. it'd be fun just to like, let's hang out and let's both make knives one day. And I, I think it'd be amazing that the amount we would learn off of each other. Oh, absolutely. You can always learn something from another person because the way they do something, you might do it differently and you just learn from how they do it or they learn from you. It's a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We used to... When we would do airport conveyors, 
like I, I was always the foreman from our company. And most of the time, we'd have to hire local laborers. Um, depending on the union laws and stuff, we'd have to hire local from the Millwright Union or whatever. But I always remember um, whenever I'd hire new guys, I'd be like, okay, this is what we're doing. We're going to put this carousel together. I'm going to show you the way that we've always done it. But I'm like a horse with blinders on, right? I was shown that way, and that's the way I've always done it. If you see anything that you think would be better, I would love you to try it out. Give it a shot, see if it's better. And I said, you could literally change the way that we do this because I'm so accustomed to my methods that I, you know, my mind has been cornered in with mm-hmm. the way I've always done it. And so it's it's amazing. You see people solving problems and or the way they approach their knife making. It's so cool to see that. And even people that, like you say, uh, you know, kind of getting back to that whole internet search and how we learn. Um, you know, if you were to learn how to make a knife without YouTube right now, I think it'd be fascinating to see people's approach. Like, this is an object, make this. And they've never seen how other people do it. Right. I think it'd be really, really fascinating to see what they ended up coming. Or it might be completely like, wow, that is way worse. It's a good <laughs> right. thing we share information, but yeah. it could go both ways, I guess. Interesting way to look at stuff, though. Absolutely. So outside of knife making, what other? do you have any other hobbies or interests? Or is the knife making your main... I guess you've got kids. How many kids do you have? Uh, well, we got one. Yep. One uh, little girl. She'll be seven this year. All right. And on. we actually... After four years of trying to have another, we got another one on the way. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Hence why I'm in the privacy of our new nursery. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. When's, uh, when's the due date? Uh, November. Around oh, right November 6th should be here. Oh, that'll be fun, hey? Yeah, that's another fun. little girl on the way. Oh, good. I bet your daughter's really, really excited. Oh, uh, well, surprisingly enough, she really wanted us to have a boy. So she oh, was really? kind of disappointed. <laughs> that's funny. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a blessing, that's for sure. Yeah. And then kind of I was, I was getting to um, not a lot of time for hobbies when you have kids. No, not near as much. Uh, sometimes I, I, like, I, I wake up real early in the mornings on my days off and so on. And uh, I'll fix myself some breakfast, sit down for a minute, wake up. And then I'll go out to the garage and start working on something. And about that time, my daughter wakes up and comes out there. And says, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, when we, when my wife and I were first married, I, I, we didn't have kids for like three years or something, but I was really big into motorcycles. And uh, I just told my buddies, like, when I got married, I had one motorbike and it's it an older one. And then within the first year of being married, I had five motorcycles. <laughs> I, like, I bought my wife one, I bought a new one. I was like, this is, <laughs> is this how marriage works? I thought it was the opposite, right? Like, you're <laughs> married with all your toys and they disappear. And I had the opposite experience, but. I remember, man, like I was always in the garage working on my motorbikes. And then I, I tell my wife this all the time, but like when she got pregnant, she was just exhausted all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I loved it because I'd get home from work and she'd be asleep on the couch. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'd be up in the <laughs> garage to like, yeah. And, and I told my wife a few years ago, I said, honey, was I a jerk when we were first married before I had kids? She goes, oh, you're the biggest jerk out there, <laughs> you know? And then. You know, once you have kids, it's like, it just changes. You're, you feel differently about it. Like, I think for most decent guys, it's kind of like, you know, you know what? I want to be a father. Like, I, I right. need to be inside the house instead of just goofing around with my old toys, you know? Right. Your priorities but, really take a shift whenever you got a family to look after. Yeah. Yeah. There's one point. So, I had the five motorcycles. And I I like to do wheelies. And uh, I, used, I used to be pretty good at wheelies. I could do, my best one was a 17-kilometer wheelie. I did it in Alabama, just out of outside of Dothan, Alabama, and 
learning how to wheelie, you crash a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always had, you know, I'd, I'd wreck a bike and then I'd get parts and I'd ride another bike. And it was one morning I, I was going to work and my wife had a little Buell Blast. And it's basically like, it's a, a, a Sportster engine without the back cylinder. Mm-hmm. So it's made, made by Harley. It's a single cylinder full of 500cc. And I fired it up and I was just about to open the garage door. And, and she was asleep when I left, but she woke up and said, what on earth are you doing? I said, I'm going to work. She goes, get off my motorcycle. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> she goes, look at your bikes. <laughs> They're all in pieces. You're not wrecking my bike. And I was like, oh man, this sucks. So, <laughs> But um, yeah, I ended up having some pretty bad accidents. The last one I was, I was working in Oakland, California and I almost, I was doing a wheelie and I lost control and I almost got hit by a bus and it, it was terrible. So that, at that point, my wife said, okay, you know what? You're not spending any more money. Uh, we're about to have our, our first son. So you're not spending more money on bikes. And it's just recently, last couple months, my wife said, well, if you want to look at a motorbike again, I might let you. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's, it's true. I couldn't be trusted. It's, I was never one for the top speed, but man, when you learn how to wheelie, it's, you can't, <laughs> you're going to waste your front tire. You got to save that, you know? Right. Oh, it's good times. Yeah, it's it's that way with a lot of things when you said um, it took you a lot of crashing to figure it out. Uh, it's that it's that way with almost everything you do. You gotta you gotta fail sometimes before you actually figure out what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I will give this though, if there's anybody that wants to learn how to do wheelies like on crotch rockets, mm-hmm. um, one one tip somebody told me it made a huge difference is if you have steep hills, like the steepest grade you can find. And practice doing wheelies going up that. Because you think about it, you're already you're already like this and your balance right. point puts your front tire closer to the ground. You know, so if you're a flat and you get it up, your your balance point, your front tire is like three feet in the air. Whereas if you're on a really steep hill, you get your balance, you're only like a foot and a half up, you know. So that actually made a huge difference. Is is a matter of I I've been trying for weeks and weeks, nothing. And I went out there and two nights I could all of a sudden bullet and start shifting through the gears. Mm. Um there you go. There's a little tip for anybody who wants to do anything illegal. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put yourself in the hospital a few times. I got a, a question. So what's your, so we talked about your knife steel. What type of handles do you like working with the most? Uh, speaking of handle material? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really like working with uh, a lot of different micarta. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, I, I like the feel of it. It's really easy to work with, and it's just a classic look to it. Uh, I've worked with some woods, but then I found being out here in El Paso, it gets so hot that the wood would like to warp. Just oh, okay. with it with it just sitting in the drawer, it would really? warp like crazy. So I kind of got away from because that's the last thing you want. You want yeah. glue it to a knife, and then it warps and pops to epoxy. And yeah. so uh, I got to working with a lot of um, different colors and uh, materials of um, micarta, and I really enjoy that. That's cool. Have you ever tried stabilized wood? Uh, no, I haven't. That is a is a game changer. Actually, Rob's Wildwood. I think he's in Texas. Have you ever heard of Rob's Wildwood? Yeah, yeah. I follow him on Instagram. I've seen it. Yeah, it's some really nice looking stuff. Mm-hmm. It's funny because there's a there's groups of I think there's two groups. There's the groups that like the traditional stabilized where everything's still natural colored. Mm-hmm. And they really don't like it when they put in dyes and stuff like that. And then some people just love the dyed burls and stuff. I like I like both of them, right? I right. see beauty in, in both of them. But, um, I mean, they're expensive. I'd like a set of scales, like 40, 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. But, man, is it ever... Uh, you know, one of the early knives I made, I didn't think about that it would shrink. Like, we're actually quite dry here. Um, you know, especially most of the year we're not... Like, right now it's very humid. 
Um, but for a lot of the year, like all winter long, it's bone dry here. And I remember my first knife I made and it's great. And I used it all summer long. And then in the winter time, I was still using it, still carrying it. And the, the, the scale shrunk away from the kind of, so you have the outline of the full tang and they actually kind of just downsized. So the, the tang was a little bit proud. And then in the spring, when, after we'd start getting a rain, things would start growing, it swelled again. Right. And it's funny. So I got this knife and I, uh, not that I need to know what, what climate we're in, but it tells me <laughs> like we're in the wintertime, I can see the gap. And then in the summertime, it looks normal again. And I'd never even thought about the fact that, that wood would do that if mm-hmm. it wasn't stabilized. I, I mean, I don't think I knew about stabilized wood when I started this, but it's a lot of fun. I, do you find with the micartas, do you ever use paper micarta? Uh, I haven't used any paper micarta. I've used a lot of canvas and linen micarta, but I don't okay. really use paper. I find some micartas are so slow to grind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got this one stuff. It might have been linen, but I thought it was, I think it was a black paper micarta. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, I'd been using G10, and that stuff comes off real nice. Like, it comes quick. and But I had this stuff, and I bet it probably ground four times slower than G10. That that actually makes a lot of sense uh, because I find that uh, canvas micarta will grind a lot easier and a lot faster than linen micarta. And I think it probably has something to do with the density of the fabric that's used. Yeah. Uh, say with paper micarta, it's a lot of paper and it's a lot more dense as opposed to a, a canvas micarta, which is very open. And I'm sure like a burlap micarta or something would just be a dream to grind right through. Yeah, totally. Just all ever- open and mostly epoxy. Yeah. You ever make your own micarta or where do you get it from? I, I tried that on one of the first knives I made. I made some out of blue jeans and it just didn't end up well. So so now now I, I buy all my materials. Uh, I get it all from Pops Knife Supply. Okay, yep. Right on. I know that's a, that's the thing with knife making is there's so many rabbit holes to go down. <laughs> um, there's a, a gentleman here, uh, True North Micarta, Rob. He, uh, I, I mentioned last podcast, but he's a firefighter. And started make his own uh, micarta, and he actually sent me. I, I got some wood blocks from him, and then he sent me a whole bunch of fire hose for me to do my own, uh, make my own micarta with. And I just haven't gotten to it yet because it's like it's kind of like you know you you kind of have to pick which areas you want to get better at right now. Right. Um, I, I have seen some people that will jump into everything. It's like okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to forge this blade. I'm going to make the micarta for it. I'm going to do this and this and this. And they put all this together. It's like, wow, that looks like, you know, a poorly finished where you did a whole bunch of stuff. And I was, my approach was always like, if you just focus on what you want. Like, I always think the grinds are some of the, as far as the making. I mean, the heat treat obviously is the number one thing with a knife, but I always wanted to get my grinds better. And so I was like, until I have that figured out, let's not get crazy with other parts of the knife. Let's keep right. it easy and simple. And that's but. really how I felt, um, about about it before is like i said before i just wanted to make something cool yeah uh, and, and then it developed into well i just want to make something useful because if it looks cool but it's not heat treated properly or what have you well it's not very useful yeah uh so before deployment uh last year i was really focused on making knives that were durable useful served a purpose and then when i got back i tried to mix in some of the elegancy into the usefulness. And once you find the balance between a useful knife and a beautiful knife, you got a really good, really good blade at the end there. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think if anybody's first starting out, and I should have told myself this 
when I first started as well, focus on the usability first, then yeah. kind of dabble into the more uh, pretty aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because it's, especially when you, you start following people on Instagram, or you start looking at this stuff and you'll see these makers that have been doing it for years or they're just really good. They've spent a lot of time mm -hmm. and it's so easy just to focus on the aesthetics. Right. You know, it's like, oh man, that looks so cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely true. That's some pretty sound advice. Getting, getting to the basics of what makes a knife a knife, I believe, really helps any maker to focus in on making a good quality knife. Whether yeah. it'd be your steel choice, your heat treat, uh, your edge geometry, and so on and so forth sharpening uh, yeah focus on the basics before you try to dabble into the aesthetics i believe yeah how do you sharpen your blades uh on my 2x72 right now yeah right on i uh i have the uh the kmg articulating work rest and then i have a little oh, jig okay. that i that i made with a bar going through it and uh the tormek clamp knife clamp and so I grind uh, my bevels on that, well, my, yeah. my sharpening edge on that. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant way to go um, because you got you got the 2x72 and it's, first of all, you, it's an expense, it's an investment. It's a you know significant machine. And I always think if you can adapt that to do stuff other than just the, you know, the, the bevels or the shaping the handles and putting it to use as a knife sharpener, I think it's well worth the time it takes to set a little system like that up. Oh, absolutely. And once again, going back to how important a VFD is to really be able to slow it down mm -hmm. and run it in reverse and so on and so forth, you could really dial in on your bevel, get the angle just the way you want it to. Yeah. And yeah. which with the variety of belts you have, I start at a 120 grit to establish the initial edge and I work my way all the way up to a 2000 grit belt just okay. to get a really nice cutting edge on there. Depending on what the knife is used for, sometimes I'll stop at 600 and sometimes I'll go all the way up to 2000. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. A lot of I don't know. I know I never thought about that when I was getting into sharpening. I always found sharpening really difficult. Like I always thought it was way easier to make the knife than to sharpen the knife. Right. Um but it's you know, I never really thought about the different types of edge and knowing what the knife is for like um uh, one of my buddies, uh, he's a BM knife and tool on Instagram. Uh, we're kind of going back and forth about sharpening. He always says I, he likes a really toothy edge. Mm -hmm. So he just goes to 220. And it's true, you know, say if you're doing rope cutting or, you know, you're doing more like heavy use bushcraft type stuff, you don't, you don't really want to get a real fine, fine edge on there. Right. And uh, then the opposite. I mean, if you're cutting up meat, like, you know, cutting fish or something like that or doing tuna sushi or whatever, obviously you want that thing, like, as fine as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, it really comes down to what you're doing with the knife, and that'll tell you how you need – how high of a grind you need to go with uh, the grit selection and the angle, of course, of the secondary bevel. So mm – -hmm. Yeah, that really tells you where you need to go in that aspect. That's the other part I never thought about, too, is like what angle do you sharpen at, right? Um, right. Interesting, I, I took a knife sharpening class at the place where I bought these Japanese knives. And because they're, they're ground so thin and they're so hard, they actually sharpen them to go between 16 to 18 degrees, which is really fine. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, I think a lot of the other, they'll say like the the Western style knives, uh, kitchen knives, typically those are around like 20 degrees. And then, you know, some guys for like hunting and bushcrafting knives, you can go up to like 25 degrees. Right. And like with my, uh, my everyday carry knives that I make, I, I generally try and stick around 20 degrees. Um, then I make a camping knife. I put around 23. Uh, my skinning knives, I actually go to about a 17. Okay. With, and it's between 10 to 15 thousandths behind the edge, and I, I take it up to a 600 grit on yep. the uh, the sharpening because it gives a really nice toothy edge, and it's thin to where it'll, it'll just it'll tear right into a deer, no problem. No, okay, yeah. That's fun when you when you experiment and you can customize knives for that purpose, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Uh, like I said, when I first started out, not knowing any of these, like, uh, look at the edge. Yeah, it looks pretty good. I'll sharpen it now. <laughs> uh, but once you really focus in on the uh, what makes a knife a knife and what makes it good for a certain purpose, it's really cool to see yeah. the the difference that... 20 degrees versus 18 degrees per side will really make in the cutting performance of a knife. Yeah. And that's the, that's the importance too, of actually using the knives that you make mm-hmm. for purposes. Right. Um, I know I started making like bushcraft knives and oh, I always compared it to, to, you know, some other ones that I bought and I had some bark rivers and stuff. Um, but it's amazing. I'll, I'll make a few different knives and I'll intentionally do them different and then I'll take them out and try them out you know right. try just carving sticks try different things and um i think i've tried two of my knives skinning deers and it's interesting because uh, i can see how one performs over the other and they weren't skinning knives they're actually like just a bushcraft slash hunting knife mm-hmm. um but man you learn a lot about what you're making you know you, you you skin a deer with with this knife and then i tried with the next one with the intention of like okay i want to see how different this is and i use this like i don't really know so i grabbed my other one and i actually kind of went and using two different knives that I made and I made them different and I'm doing the same task. It's, it's amazing how that hands-on knowledge of using the knife transfers to the decisions like, okay, from now on, I'm going to make this knife like this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important uh, for noon makers. I think a lot of times you get done with a knife. It's like, oh, it's, it's done. And obviously for me, I mean, I sell my knives. Um, but like when I make kitchen knives, every kitchen knife that I make, I have one for myself and I use it all the time. Right. And I remember the first iteration of a barbecue knife I made. I, I was so pleased. I did a YouTube video on it years ago, uh, two, three years ago. And it's actually pretty terrible. <laughs> like, I don't like using it because it's way too thick. And even, I mean, barbecue knives, they don't need to be real fine. But even for, like, cutting up a brisket or, or something like that, I'm like, ah. Oh. And I, I can tell. It's like, I just, I didn't do it right. I didn't, I didn't bring the grind up nearly high enough. And um, it's just a... Uh, it's crazy how when you use the things you you make, the next one you make, it's gonna be like okay, now you've got some some feedback, you know. Right, you get your own personal feedback, and it's easier to distinguish what needs to change in certain areas because not only are you making it, but you're using it as opposed to a lot of people who will buy a custom handmade knife. Okay, yeah, it works. I don't know how what could be done different to make it better so they can't always give you that feedback that you would want Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to say if if you're doing a flat grind on a knife and you're doing a hollow grind on a knife to do a specific task you can tell which one would perform better yourself and yeah some people who buy might buy that knife wouldn't know 
Yeah. And I know there's, um, I've heard of certain knife makers that only will make hunting knives or like just skinning knives, but they're, they're hunters. And, and I've heard people say, oh, I want one of his knives because that's all he makes and that's all he does. Like he's Mm -hmm. a big time hunter and he's always uh, dressing out animals with his knives. And so he knows, and it's, you know, it's kind of where specialization comes in and stuff, but I've actually heard people say, man, the reason I want his knife is because he's a hunter and he right. knows what it's like in the field. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't hunt that much. Um, I strictly bow hunt, but, um, I think I've only, I've, I've gotten four deer in my life. Right. So I can't say like, oh yeah, I'm really good at, at dressing out a deer because I'm not right. <laughs> but you get some of these guys that are always hunting and every type of thing. And then they also make knives. I've mm-hmm. heard that their knives are just incredible because of all that time it'd be almost like a chef who decides to get really into and really good at making kitchen knives mm-hmm. and he's also a chef and he cooks all the time you know yeah it's it always pays off to um be interested in the field of which you're trying to provide for like like you said with a, a hunter making a hunting knife well he he knows how that knife needs to perform and what would make it perform better in that aspect so he knows what to do yeah <clears throat> That's true. So I was wondering, are there any uh, any crazy knife projects or any, like, say a knife that you've never made before that you're really itching to try? Like, I mean, I know you got the straight razor going, but is there any kind of, like, fantasy, pro- not fantasy, I don't like that word, but <laughs> a dream project that you'd like to try out someday? Uh, well, I mean, the only things that I'm really itching to try is just a, a new process that I haven't done in a knife. Like, uh, right now, I've got some materials on the way to start try and make uh, removable handle scales it's something i've never done yep something i wouldn't mind trying so really that's kind of that's kind of it um i'm kind of gearing towards where i want to go with my knife making which is kitchen knives hunting knives and straight razors yep so it's just uh trying to make those as proficient as i possibly can yeah right on do you follow built sharp on instagram uh, I'm not sure. Okay. He's a, I don't know where, oh, he's in Florida. He just moved down to Florida, I think. Um, he does a lot of really cool, he just did a, I think yesterday, an Instagram story about how he does his removable handle scales. Mm. Um, he's a cool guy, guy and like kind of shows his standoffs that he uses and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I really like uh, those removable handle scales. The reason why I want to do that is so that, I can get a, a good, solid, durable finish on my knives, which would be an acid etch and stone wash, as opposed to what I'm doing right now is bluing. Mm-hmm. That way I can get that finish on the whole knife and then put the handles on and it's done. Yeah. As opposed that to is. what I'm doing now is I'm I'm bluing them and I'm stone washing them. Then I'm gluing the handles on and I'm shaping the handle. And to get the spine the same color, I'm going with the gun blowing and I'm blowing it with the handle on. Gotcha. Yeah. It's just a lot of process, but with that process, uh, it helps me get a really nice transition between handle and blade material. Yeah. And so I just want to try my best to get that transition with yeah. the right finish as all yeah. as well. Yeah. I really like removable scales. Um, like say for that reason, that way you can have that nice acid wash show through the tang. Um, it's interesting too. I had a customer buy a barbecue knife as a gift for his daughter. She was in college in Colorado or something like that. 
and he, he ended up sending me a message. I, I shipped it to him, and he said, well, the knife looks amazing, but my daughter hates the color of the handles. <laughs> and I said, no problem. I said, just send it back. And it really was like a non, non-issue, right? Um, right? I even you know, used the same fasteners, and I sent it back to him. I said, do you want to keep these ones? You know, send them back so she could change them out later if she wanted to. But it is really handy. Um, and even if you have to, say, down the road, you know, you know, as you use a knife and you sharpen I'm talking like years and years of use, you know, eventually the blade gets smaller mm-hmm. and then your geometry changes. And so if you're constantly using a knife and sharpening it for like five years, there, there's going to come a point where you might want to do a regrind on that blade. Mm-hmm. Where that's where the, again, you can pop off those scales um, and, and do it that way. And the one thing I really like as well uh, when I'm doing removable handle scales is that you can get the profile of the scales brought to the tang so everything's nice and even. And what I will often do is I'll take them off and I'll just put like a little sacrificial piece of steel in there. And that way you can bolt everything up and you can do a lot of the, the profiling and, you know, if you're doing a Coke bottle or something like that, and you don't have to worry about touching the blade to the grinder. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I like to do is I, I kind of put a little thumb relief in on, on the top of my handles. And I've done a couple of them. And basically I use like a five inch contact wheel and when I'm coming in, I've touched the, a finished blade before. And that's just like, oh, man, it, it's worst. done. It's it's my knife now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Throw it in the kitchen drawer. And right. So it, that's one thing where if you're doing different types, and some people don't like that, but there's certain techniques I've wanted to try. Or if you want to do like a rock pattern on the on the uh, the scales but not on the blade, mm. so nice to be able to pop those off the blade. You know, you, you tighten everything down, do your rock patterning, bolt it on, and it's perfect, you know? Right. There's a lot of there's some advantages in the making when you have removable scales too. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be giving that a shot. My my biggest concern is just really making sure I get a good, nice transition between handle and blade material. Yeah. It's seamless. It's comfortable. Yeah. <clears throat> right on. Well, we talked about a lot of good things here. Yeah. yeah. I was going to... Do you have, this might be something I'm springing on you, do you have any recommendations of things you're enjoying, whether it be, could it be a book or a YouTube podcast, Instagram, that you found inspiration lately to share with the listeners? Well, uh, one I will share that's been a, a big inspiration to me, um, now I mentioned, mentioned him earlier, was uh, Steve Miller Knives. No relation, okay. I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, but he, on Instagram, he is uh, the Steve Miller man. Yeah. He um, he makes some of the most beautiful uh, hunting hunting and skinning knives that I've seen. Uh, just really solid work and just an outstanding individual. Yeah. So uh, I guess I, I reckon I'd say him, the Steve Miller man on Instagram. Right on. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. People can go check that out. And then for me, I'm going to recommend a YouTube channel. I don't I don't know why I don't a lot of making recommendations but there's a youtube channel i really enjoy uh the guy's name name is craig adams it's craig with a k and he does like travel films of basically like ultra lightweight backpacking really interesting because he carries all his gear and he'll do like he, he does all over the world but he doesn't do any talking and they're usually about 20 to 30 minute long pieces but you feel like you're doing the trip with them Mm-hmm. Um, and his cinematography is incredible. When I look at his, his films, I'm like, that's like one guy carrying all of his equipment on his backpack. And he's a real ultra minimalist kind of guy. He actually lives like a whole minimalist lifestyle and stuff. But 
very interesting. I think he's won some awards um, for the way that he films, and it's all on YouTube. He also has a podcast and stuff, but that would be my recommendation if you're into that kind of backpacking, hiking stuff. And it's not necessarily like gear focused. You obviously see what he's using, but it's just he'll have these this music and this cinematic pieces. It's like you go to these places on Earth that you would never get to, and you get to backpack them. It's it's really really interesting channel. So I'll put that one in the show notes as well. And then where can people find you and your work? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, just uh, Miller Knife Works all together. Right on. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I, I want to say thank you for your service. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, um, I'm, I always have a deep level of respect for people that are willing to serve their country and they say yes to service. So thank you for that. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say I really appreciate you having me on. This was a, this was a good time. Yeah. No, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's so cool because it's a way to chat with people that really really you don't ever just say hey do you want to talk to each other <laughs> you know what i mean like you could go back and forth on instagram i remember when instagram brought out the phone feature where you could call somebody mm-hmm. and i didn't know that was a thing and basically anybody who sends me a message i approve it like mm-hmm. you know and, and like answer their question whatever and then this one guy he asked a couple questions he's from germany and i didn't think anything about it and then this feature was enabled and I remember it was like 2.30 in the morning and all of a sudden my phone started ringing. I'm like, what the heck? And I looked and it says Instagram. Is <laughs> this call from this guy that had, that had just started talking to me a few days ago and I was so torqued, you know, but um, it's weird. That, that, that's part of Instagram, but nobody really does that. So it's kind of the fun part about having a podcast. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's somehow I guess if you have recorded, it's, it's worth doing or taking the time right. for it. But no, I really appreciate you taking the time for this. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, for the listeners out there, uh, if you'd like to check out other shows on the Makery Network, there's a lot of good stuff, new stuff coming out all the time. Actually, there's a new podcast this week, this past week for young makers. And uh, just want to say thank you so much for listening and you guys have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you later. Cheers. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.